Jesus said that Satan is the father of lies, and that dude lies to me, big time. Weekly, nearly. I think Saturday is the most, um, where he's the most busy for me. Because if he can derail me on Saturday, it will impact y'all on Sunday. But he lies to me. He makes me believe that a given Sunday is unimportant. I've given it a name, the lie of the small. It's not a real, real um, interesting name, but it's one that at least gives me a place to park the thought and the idea of what he does to me week by week. He lies to me and tells me this coming Sunday is small. He lies to me and tells me that folks will be traveling, folks will be distracted. There'll be Father's Day activities or things like that that will keep folks from really paying attention and engaging. Our folks that are traveling uh, will likely have a busy week next week and listening to a message that they missed will be small and unimportant. That's the kind of stuff that he tells me week after week after week. He tells me to keep it small because the hearing will be small. He tells me that the hearers will give it small space in the grand scheme, so don't put too much effort into it, is the kind of stuff that he tells me every single week. Small response should mean small effort. He tells me also that Greenville is small and insignificant in the grand scheme of things. He tells me Hunt County is small and insignificant, and whatever difference we might make or hope to make in Greenville or Hunt County will ultimately just be a small difference since Greenville and Hunt County are small. It is, after all, at least Greenville, Scott pointed out one time, where the weatherman stands. Greenville. Can you move so I can see where we live? He says my prayers are small. I don't know if he does this to you, but he does it to me. He says my prayers are small and unimportant and not effective, so don't waste my time. Okay, we're rolling? Yeah, should be good to go. Okay. Give me just a minute. I'm glad, because this thing is on my nerves. I need some freedom to move about. I know I don't normally do that. Okay, nice. Thank you, Lord. In regard to my prayer, he says my prayers are small, so why should I waste my time? And if I'm going to pray, if I'm going to bother, then ask for small things because asking for big things would just be a disappointment because he doesn't do big things. That's the kind of stuff that Satan lies to me about week after week after week. I wonder if he lies to you. Does he say these sorts of things to you week after week? Does he tell you the efforts that you make to lead your family in faith are small? And the world's message is so big that in contrast to your meager efforts, why bother? Dads, single moms, spiritually single moms, does he tell you that? 
Why bother? Because the world's message is so big. Does he tell you that your relationships at work are small and insignificant and unimportant? That they should be given limited space? Because that's just work. And let's leave work, work. Does he tell you that you can't change your entire neighborhood and that even at your best, you might only be able to connect to a couple of your neighbors and that's small and insignificant, so why bother? Does he tell you that your gifts are small and meager and maybe even undeveloped and thin, so why bother trying to display them or display his glory through the exercise of your gifts? It'll likely just be a big embarrassment. Does he tell you with me that Greenville is small? Do you think that way? Do you think that Hunt County is insignificant in the grand scheme of things? And that if you make an effort to make huge changes, then that might be a good thing, but anything other than huge is just a waste of time. Just don't bother. I call it the lie of the small. And today, I think that this message is going to address those lies. I think it's going to flip the light on and shed some light on whether those lies are true or not, and it will show them to be what they are, just that, lies. This message today is just going to deal with two verses in Ephesians chapter 3. So if you would, go ahead and turn there. It's a fitting closure to where we've been in the first three chapters of Ephesians. This letter so far has been very much doctrinal written to this church in Ephesus. And these last two verses are a nice closure to what we would call the doctrinal section of the letter. And then we're going to move into a very practical section of the letter through the rest of Ephesians. But something that I want you to think about right now before we continue is this letter. We've been dealing with some lofty, amazing truths in these first three chapters. And this morning, we're going to deal with, with a couple of verses that are really full of some wonderful things. But these, this letter was not written to a megachurch, I want to point out to you. It was not written to a church with a big budget, with a big stage, with a big platform, and a big presence in Ephesus. This letter was written to what we believe to be just a collection of little bitty house churches in Ephesus. Little huddles, you might call them. Two or three, four families might be in a house church. Nothing impressive, mind you. In the grand scheme of things, they could be inundated with these lies from Satan saying, you're small, you're unimportant, you're insignificant, so why bother? But it's to this little collection of house churches that Paul gives these lofty three chapters full of truth. And this morning, he's going to end that message or that section of the the letter to the Ephesians with a song. Two-verse song. He's really, we believe to be what, what, what we do or what we believe he's doing here in these two verses, verses 20 and 21, is what's called to be an ascription psalm where he is ascribing glory to God. It's believed to be leaning back to or pointing back to Psalm 96. I would encourage you as families to spend some time reading Psalm 96 this week, especially verses 7 and 8. 
Psalm 96 is an ascription psalm. And one of the things that goes on in Psalm 96 is the families of the earth worship. That promise was made to Abraham. And we are the fulfillment of that promise as this good news went to the Gentiles. And that's what Paul has just dealt with, dealt with with the Jews being invited into this story and being made one with the Israelites or the Christian believing Israelites. So it's a fitting passage. If he's leaning back to that Psalm 96, I would encourage you to read that this week. But from these two verses, what we're going to find in these next few minutes is we're going to find at least, there are many more, but I'm going to deal with five things that are true about God and two things that are true about us. And the last two of the five things that are true about God overlap to give us insight into the true, two true things about us. So really, I'm making five brief points this morning. And the first three have to do with God. The last two have to do with God and us. First, let me read our passage, and then we'll unpack it. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. First thing I want to bring out and draw out in regards to him who is able to do those, that word do there is the word in Greek work. To him who is able to do work, it could be translated directly. First of all, this first point I want you to enjoy is that God is able to do work. Turn to John chapter 4. I only have a handful of passages for you to turn to this morning other than Ephesians 3. So you should keep a finger or a, uh, a bookmark or something in Ephesians chapter 3 there because we'll be coming back to it as we unpack it. But I want to show you something that develops in John chapter 4. This is dealing with God being able to do work. There's a little development in John chapter 4 that as I was studying and preparing this week that I just could not get my head off of this little development in John chapter 4 and 5. In John chapter 4, you can look at the heading right there, Jesus meets with a woman in Samaria. They're passing through Samaria. He stops at a well. Um, the gang goes into town to get some food. And he hangs out at the well there and spends some time talking with the Samaritan woman. He has an interaction with her. The disciples come back. And in verse 31, they come back with food. And they're encouraging him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And he's speaking figuratively. They think he's speaking literally. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Okay, now keep that in view as we move into the next chapter. It's not quite the next scene, but it's nearly the next scene. The next scene, he heals an official son. Look at the, the heading right there. But nearly the next scene is in chapter 5. He comes up to the pools of Bethesda. Watch what happens here at the pools of Bethesda in chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheet Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. There were these little 
porches or porticos around this pool, what they believed to happen here at this pool is that the angels or some angel would stir up the waters and whoever could plop themselves into the pool first would be healed is what they believed. So there were hundreds possibly of lame, sick, wounded, laying around the porticos or porches at Bethesda. And Jesus walks up to one man of those hundreds he walks up to one man. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Likely his family dropped him off there every day. It was just a way to deal with him in hopes that maybe homeboy will get healed. But it's a place to park him every day. So they park him there. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another one steps down before me. So he's lame and he's slow apparently as well. So he's, just, he's not getting in the pool fast enough to get supposedly healed. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now look at the next verse. Now that day was the Sabbath. Now if you have any familiarity with the Sabbath, this, you may not, so I don't want to make any assumptions. The Sabbath was the day that the Lord gave creation, really, but especially Israel, a day to rest. It is a day they weren't to collect manna or quail. They were to collect the, the, the day prior only and not collect on that day. In fact, if they tried to, to save it to the next day, it would be spoiled. God's providing for them on a day where they're supposed to rest. It was a day to rest, but Jesus healed this man and, and, and told him to pick up his mat and carry his mat and walk on the Sabbath. Now, he didn't make any rules about not carrying, in the, not, not carrying your mat. That wasn't a rule from God. That was the the Jewish system sort of making a hedge around the law for fear of breaking the law. But in the eyes of Judaism here, contemporary Judaism at that time, he was breaking the Sabbath. Okay, so let's see what happens. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man said, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed them. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Remember, he said his food is to work. His food is to do the Father's will and to, the, to, and to do the Father's work. And here you see him doing the Father's work on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This passage is one that I've referred to a number of times over the years because it's encouraged me to realize that God is always at work. And in this passage, in context, we see Jesus doing some work on a day where that context was telling him, you're supposed to rest. You're not supposed to carry your mat, formerly lame dude. You're supposed to rest. But there's a theme that goes on in Christ's healing where he's doing this work that he says, I'm doing my father's work on the Sabbath. 
There's a healing theme in conjunction with the Sabbath. Here's some other things that happened on Sabbath days. He cast an unclean spirit out of a man at Capernaum. He healed Peter's mother-in-law on the Sabbath. He healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. He healed this man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. He healed a crippled woman on the Sabbath in Luke 13. He healed a man with dropsy. That's like inflammation in the soft tissues. It's, a, it's, not, it's an old-fashioned term. He healed a man with dropsy on Luke, in Luke 14 on the Sabbath. And he healed a man born blind in John chapter 9 on the Sabbath. What I think is going on here where Jesus is saying, I'm doing my father's work. My father is working until now and I'm working and I'm going to show you my work on your Sabbath is that he's showing that, that God has called his people to rest, but that he doesn't rest. He doesn't rest. I've looked for another occasion where God is resting other than Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, and I cannot find it. After he's created in six days, it says on the seventh day, he rested from his creative work. I think there's a distinction there. It's not saying that he was tired or fatigued, that he needed to rest. Isaiah chapter 40 tells us this. It says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. I can't find any place other than Genesis chapter 2 verse 3 where he rests. I think what's going on here where Christ is doing these healings and these wonderful creative works on days where everyone else is supposed to be resting is that he's doing what we can't do even if we tried. He's healing the lame. He's giving sight to the blind. He's healing Peter's mother-in-law. He's healing people with withered hands. He's healing crippled people. He's doing amazing things to show us that he's working when we're supposed to be resting. He's always at work. He does not rest. I can't find any occasion where God's had a day off except for one. And I'm not really sure that he took a day off from anything. It just says he rested from his creative work. God does not rest. Jesus said, my father is working and now I am working. So we can know that God is able to do work by the fact that he's always been doing work. From let there be light to take up your mat. He has always been at work and will always be working. Now the second point. If you need to go back to Ephesians, flip back over there because I want you to see this next phrase. He is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask. This next point has to deal with this phrase, far more abundantly than all that we ask. That word, that phrase, far, those series of words, far more abundantly means vastly more than more than we can ask. Vastly more than more. When I was a kid, on Saturday mornings, we had a routine. I would wake up um, usually around 8, 8 a.m., something like that. And uh, we would wake up to a brand new box of Cap'n Crunch cereal. Anybody else? Captain Crunch. And we would wake up to cartoons. 
I mean, Looney Tunes, that was back in the day when they had really good cartoons. There are a few good ones now, but they're not near as good as the ones back in the day. I mean, everything was better back then, right? We'd wake up and we would watch cartoons and we would eat so much of that cereal till our roofs of our mouths were raw. We'd eat a whole box, you know, between me and my two brothers. But we also, something else that we woke up to after that was done, my dad was off at the animal clinic working all morning on Saturday mornings, but we would look reluctantly after we finished our box of cereal and all the cartoons around noon, we would look at a list, a Saturday to-do list that was given to us that my dad made for us every single Saturday. And I thought, you know, I've made to-do lists for the kids. I live by to-do lists. I make to-do lists and I'm not so bad. I, there's some people like Erin Adele. She makes a to-do list with a little to-do to check her to-do list. I mean, she's that consistent about her to-do list. But I, I like to-do lists. And I, I can imagine how satisfying it would be for my dad to make a to-do list and know that these things are going to get done. The problem is, it's three little boys that are supposed to do them. So whether or not they get done is pretty inconsistent. And how they're done is in question. But the fact is, he made a to-do list for me every Saturday morning. I was in prayer time. Now, I'm weaving a story together. I was in prayer time Wednesday morning. Wednesday mornings, usually on Wednesday mornings, I'm in prayer time with some other men from our church. Uh, 6.30 a.m., we gather in the conference room up there, and we make a list of things that we pray for. Some of them come up as we're praying. Some of them we share before we pray. And I put a little space next to each of these things that we pray for And then as we pray for them, I check them off. And one of the things I was thinking about is I was looking. Yes, I opened my eyes during prayer. I I know that I was breaking all the rules, but I looked at, opened my eyes. I don't know where that rule is, but let's imagine that there is such a thing. And I looked at my notes, okay? And I looked down and I see these checks that I'm making next next to these notes. And I'm like, what I'm looking at looks really familiar. And I made a little note out here on Wednesday morning as... I don't know who was praying during this time. I was agreeing with them in prayer, but I did make this note that this is our to-do list for God. We're making a to-do list for God. This isn't our to-do list. We're making one for God. Not like he's subservient to us, like like I was, you know, supposed to obey my father and go do what he told me to do. But it's like making a to-do list for someone else that you know is going to get done. And it's so sure that as we prayed for each of these things, I put a check beside them. Now, partially to know that we've prayed for them, but I put a check beside them also knowing that they're as good as done. They're as good as accomplished. Philippians chapter 4 verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. Make a list is what he's saying. Don't be anxious about stuff. Make a list of those things and give that list to God. We have a God that actually wants to know what you're anxious about. He actually wants to know the things that you want to have tended to. And the reality from this passage, he can do far more abundantly than all that we ask vastly more than more is that you can't make a list too long or with tasks too big for God. It is a beautiful feeling at the end of every Wednesday morning prayer time to look at that list of heavy stuff 
heavy stuff. Here's a sample, just from the last three Wednesdays. Praying for a brother. I'm trying to think about how to put this. Pray for a brother to come to a repentance. A brother that is near and dear to me. That we're crossways between. I don't mean just personally, but as a church. That was part of our prayer time. We prayed for Roger and Judy Ratcliffe. For Roger as he's maybe um, spending the last couple of months with his wife, Judy. Some heavy stuff. We prayed for Jake Huck and family. As they were just a few weeks ago transitioning home. We prayed for uh, a family who went through a very difficult divorce. We prayed for mother and son as they're dealing with the aftermath of that. And we even prayed for the husband and father, or former husband and father, that he would come to repentance. Some heavy stuff right there. That's a big to-do list, but it's not too big. We prayed for one of Jake and Steph's teammates that's going to be going back to a foreign land. We prayed for another one that's not sure where she's going to be going, but is likely going to be something pretty amazing. We prayed for a couple of families that are dealing with sick family members, for Elisha Hollis and his family. Everybody was sick all at once. We prayed for the Beans who were going to be traveling. We prayed for another family that has some very difficult dynamics between father and son that are just so difficult that it affects the, affects the entire family. Some big stuff on this prayer list. We prayed for Andrea Bristow, a young lady that reached out to us as a church family who has like five children, the young of, youngest of which is autistic. We prayed for her and prayed, Lord, give us the opportunity to minister to this young woman. We prayed for C3 in Commerce. We prayed for Cross Point Community Church in Rockwall. We prayed for a new mental health organization that Jerry Morris is part of. We prayed for Sandra Isham, who lost her son. We prayed for Jason Scott and Al Dumdi, whose mothers both had strokes. We prayed for Alex and Becky and for little Alex. For custody, that's big stuff. Massive stuff. We prayed for Adam and Laura in fish ministry. Man, that's huge stuff. Huge stuff. We prayed for Mary Jane's sister, Laura. We prayed for Morgan Thomas. We prayed for Alex and celebrated the latest with Alex and Becky. We prayed for Robert Carroll. We prayed for Malik and Olga who are coming to visit from Kazakhstan. And we prayed for, just collectively, not by name, for men in this church family that are struggling with addiction. A terrible, heartbreaking, painful, shameful addiction. That's some heavy stuff, and it's cool to know that as easy as it is to put the check by it, is as easy as it is to bring that anxious issue before our Lord and know that he's able to do work, first of all, and second of all, he wants to hear what we want to have done. <laughs> he's able to do work, and he's able to do even far more than we can possibly ask. What a beautiful feeling to check those things off to close my prayer journal and put it in my book bag and know that, golly, that's in good hands. <laughs> he's able to do work. He works. He's always at work. And he's dealing with stuff that's far bigger than I can deal with, that's far bigger than you can deal with. He says, bring it to me because I'm able to do far more than you can even ask. Now, let's go to our third point. 
God's ability to do more than we can even think. It sort of piggybacks off this last point. God's ability to do more than we can ask is a volume amount. He can do more than we can ask. And this next point you might think is also a volume point. He's able to do more than we can even think. But I want you to think outside the box a little bit and not think about volume. I want you to think about this word, think. In Greek, it means to consider or to understand. He's able to do more than we can ask or even consider and understand. Contextually, it means he's able to do more than we can possibly even imagine. He's able to do far more abundantly than we can even imagine, not just in quantity, but in kind. He's able to work in ways that are so far outside of the realm of our box. I told you to think outside the box. We have a box that we have to work real hard to think outside of. Well, God doesn't have a box. He's not limited to some context that we have a difficult time thinking outside of. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Things that he has thought of, we cannot even conceptualize. His plans oftentimes, in prayer that we bring before him, is to answer it and deal with it in a way that we could not even possibly imagine. I, from time to time, mention this, and I didn't ask for permission, but because I'm not going to tell anything bad or embarrassing about my kids. But I often mention that Evan and Luke have, have a visual impairment and some story related to that. That's our story. So that's something that we deal with and have dealt with over the years. I was sitting at my kitchen table with my mom and dad after Evan's graduation. And my mom looked across the table at me and uh, we were enjoying a good meal and some fellowship. Christy had some of her side of the family there and they were all outside in the pool and my mom is sort of like, ah, it's noisy, let me go inside. You know, she's kind of retreating inside and plus the AC was inside. So she's sitting at the table and I'm sitting talking with her. And she said, she looked at me and she said, Ben, you know, for years I prayed for a miracle for Evan. For years I prayed that God would just heal her eyes. And the elders got together and prayed for both of our children, laid hands on them and prayed, God, heal, heal them, please. And he didn't do that. But my mom said, you know, for years I've prayed for healing for Evan. And she said, I prayed that selfishly. And I, don't, I didn't really ask her to clarify that, she, but she said, I prayed that selfishly. She said, but what I've realized in the years since he has not healed her is that he gave us something better than a miracle. He gave us an amazing young woman, an amazing granddaughter for her, an amazing daughter for me, who's turning out to be so, such a wonderful young woman. And we have to wonder together, would she be that had God not ordained that that's what she's going to have? That's going to be her lot. God works outside of the things that we would think ideal in ways that we look back in retrospect and see that in a lot of cases, they're better than the miracle that we prayed for. That's the way he works. The fourth thing, this is going to bump into now dealing with something that we can learn from this passage about us. The fourth thing from this passage comes from the end of verse 20. I'm going to read verse 20 again just for context. Reground us in there. 
Now to him who's able to do, he's able to work first. Secondly, far more abundantly than all that we can ask. That's the second thing. Third, that he's able to work far more abundantly, more than we can ask or think or imagine according to the fourth thing, according to the power at work within us. We've met this power before in Ephesians. I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 2. If you're right there, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1. If you're right there in Ephesians, it's just a couple of pages over. In Ephesians chapter 1, this is the first time that Paul has prayed for the church in Ephesus in this letter. And in verse 16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Watch what he prays. I don't, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know three things. What is the hope to which he's called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And the third thing, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Paul prays for this church that just regular, ordinary people in Ephesus would understand and appreciate the power at work toward those who believe. He gives some descriptors after that and explains the power at work according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. The same power that he's asking, God, give them insight into the power at work within them is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. That's pretty significant power, wouldn't you say? Can you imagine the same power when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth? That's some pretty significant power. Can you imagine the power at work on that Easter morning when Jesus stepped out of a formerly sealed tomb? Paul's praying, Lord, I pray that this Ephesian church in little old Ephesus, or big Ephesus, in little old house churches all over the town would appreciate the power at work within them, the power toward us, the power within us. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power at work in us. The power that raised us from spiritual death is at work within us. The same power that was at work in bringing together Jew and Gentile, that was as amazing, frankly, as raising the dead. Because dead people don't fight back and argue, but Jews and Gentiles would push back against the notion of being made one. But that's the power at work in the church. Coupled with his ability to do work and his presence in the church is power toward us and within us. And I mean us as in us, the church. The vastly more than more, the more than we can imagine, the working outside of what we can even imagine is what he's working through us, the church. But Satan's lie of the small says that's not so. This is just Greenville, and this is just Crosspoint Fellowship. And these, I know these people. His power can't possibly at work, be at work in something so small and so insignificant. That's for bigger, bigger churches and better churches with better people and bigger people in better places. Maybe that was true of the New Testament church in Ephesus, but not in little old 2016, in little old Greenville at little old Crosspoint Fellowship. But Paul here is dealing with these little house churches in Ephesus, celebrating God's power at work in their little old house churches, collections of two or three, maybe four families. And this letter is pretty free of the sensational otherwise. He's saying that God's power is at work 
in them and toward them. I wanted, you to, I wanted you to be able to visualize this, so I want to share a passage with you, a little story. It's in 1 Kings. You don't need to turn there. You can if you'd like to, or you can just listen. It's a story about Elijah. Elijah's done some pretty amazing things at this point. He's predicted um, um, that it's going to be a drought. And then after a period of time, he predicted when it was going to rain. He defeated the prophets of Baal. You may remember that story in 1 Kings chapter 18. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, Jezebel has it in for Elijah. And Jezebel wants to kill Elijah. But listen what unfolds. There, came, then, there he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. It's the lie of the small, Elijah. Satan lied to Elijah and said, that's just you. You're the only faithful one out there. You're the only one left. He says, and they seek my life to take it away. And God told Elijah, Elijah, he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. I have a note in my Bible down below that says, a thin silence. After an earthquake, after a wind, after a fire, it says, the sound of a low whisper. And when, when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? When I think about the power of the Lord, I think about this little story and think about this little whisper and this thin silence that God showed up, not in these earth-shaking moments, though he certainly can. He showed up to Elijah, fearful Elijah, in a whisper. And in my experience in 13 years of walking with you, that's the way his power has played out in many cases in the church. In a thin whisper. In my experience, his power toward us and within us is profound, but it's subtle. In my experience, his power toward us and within us is a subtle power conditioned by worship that plays out in marvelous ways over time. In the last 13 years, I've watched this happen more than once. A man learns to love his wife as he dines on God's word week by week and as he is known by others and as he knows others. That's God's power at work. In the last 13 years, I've watched more than once a woman learn to love her husband into being worth something. 
Some of you, you have your wives to thank that you actually might be worth something because she loved you into that. And she did that as she spent time with other godly women who taught her to love her husband. That's God's subtle, thin whisper power at work in the church. More than once in 13 years, I've watched a brother learn to love even his little brother. Yes, even his little brother, it's possible. And to believe that over time that God made, yes, even that little brother in God's image. I've watched a daughter learn to love and respect her parents, learning that that is worship. Not worshiping her parents, but that's worshiping God as she loves and respects her parents. I've watched more than once a self-centered person learn to consider others as more important than themselves. I've watched a self-centered person learn to ask questions and actually to care about someone else and what's going on in their life. That's God's power at work in and through the church. I've watched this and been party to this more times than I can count Manly men learning to humble themselves and tell their friend or their wife or their son or their daughter these two difficult words that Fonzie couldn't say. I'm sorry. Some of y'all don't, don't even know who Fonzie is. He couldn't say it. I'm sorry. Sorry. I'm sorry. I've watched men time after time, manly men, humble themselves and say, I'm sorry, that's God's power at work. I've watched a selfish and stingy person learn to give. I've watched a shy introvert learn to know and be known. I've watched a person struggling with porn addiction count the shame of dealing with it as less than the pain of not. That is God's power at work in and through the church. In a thin whisper, conditioned by worship, that plays out over time. It's happened time and time and time again. I shared a passage from Isaiah chapter 40, a reference to passage from Isaiah chapter 40 this morning. And I want to share the rest of it with you. It was in chapter 40, verse 28. Have you not known? I'll read it again. Listen to the rest of it. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths, shall faint and grow weary and young men shall fall exhausted but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength they shall mount up with wings like eagles they shall run and not be weary they shall walk and not faint God's power is at work within us but if you're looking for a light show and a smoke machine and for something to happen overnight you need to start looking in the thin whispers you need to start looking in that thin silence of just a faithful plod and watch God's power at work in and through and among us. The last thing from this passage in Ephesians is in verse 21. 
to him, this God that we've spoken of this morning, that we've gathered up four things about so far, is a fifth. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's no surprise that God's glory is in Christ. That should not surprise you. But what might surprise you is that he's identifying the church as a glory instrument. I want you to think about that for a minute. He's identifying the church as a glory instrument. We're not talking figurative church. We're not talking about sort of this imaginary concept. We're talking about this right here. Just like we were talking about this being a place where his power plays out, we're talking about this being a place where his glory plays out and where his glory is displayed. Just thinking about how Gentiles used to have to see the glory of God. The queen of Sheba had to travel a long way to go visit Solomon in 1 Kings. Naaman, the uh, general who had leprosy, his nose has fallen off. We don't know that his nose has fallen off, but he had leprosy of some sort. He had to travel a long way to go consult with Elisha. Three kings had to travel a long way from the east to see the Christ child. And pilgrims had to travel from all over the Roman Empire to gather at Passover. But now, according to this passage, his glory dwells right here in the church. His power is right here and his glory is right here. I think my house is about a mile from here. How far is yours? How far did you have to travel to gather and participate in his power and to see and enjoy his glory? The wades are about a mile. The roddens are about a mile. How far were the rest of you? Some of you may have had to go, come all the way from Rockwall. 30 miles. Okay, that may seem like a lot. Ask the Queen of Sheba what's a lot. Ask Naaman with his nose falling off. That's a long way to travel with your nose falling off to go see Elisha. Man, his glory, we don't have to travel to see it. We don't have to travel from all over the Roman Empire to go see God's glory. It's right here with his church and with his people. We're not talking figurative. Here means here in the church among us. To him be the glory in the church is what he just said. Five things that I want you all to appreciate from this passage. A fitting closure to our time in the first three chapters is that God is able to do work. He's able to do more, vastly more than more than we can ask. And his ability is not limited to our concept and what we can think or imagine. He works outside of that. And fourth, his power is at work within us. Us, not figurative. Us. And his glory is right here among us. Five wonderful things from this passage. Let me pray. God, we are thankful for our time together in your word. We're thankful for your time or what you've given us in these last three chapters in Ephesians. These wonderful truths that we've had the opportunity to enjoy. These amazing realities about vertical reconciliation with our creator and horizontal reconciliation between the most different people on the face of the earth, between Jew and Gentile. God, I'm thankful that we as a church can celebrate those things and I'm thankful that we can consider today as a church that your power is at work within us, that you're always at work 
that you're doing far more than we can ask and you're doing things that are even outside of the realm of what we can even imagine. And God, I'm thankful that your glory resides here among a people. God, I pray that we'll be faithful to enjoy your glory and enjoy your story and enjoy what you've done for us in Christ. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.